everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. On Tuesday evening, February 28th, we'll be holding a great event in Matan in honor of our 100th episode coming up really soon. Dr. L. Ziegler and I will be schmoozing about teaching Tanakh today, covering some big ideas and some personal reflections. Come and be a part of our live audience. For details, see the website or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. In Parshat Truma, the people are instructed to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the Parsha details specific items, the Aron, the Kruvim atop the Kaporet, the table and its accoutrements, the menorah, the coverings and curtains, and the bronze altar used for burnt offerings, the Mizbech Ha'ola. On one hand, constructing a central place of worship where God dwells and the people meet him is a phenomenon common to so many ancient cultures, but this specific construction contains many unique dimensions that connect it to the particulars of our journey and to our unique service of God. Unlike in pagan temples, God does not live in it or eat the sacrifices, but dwells among the people. It's a meeting place of spirit. After wandering for so long without any central anchor, the erection of the Mishkan provides stability for this wandering people. The Mishkan's instructions are delivered in seven command units, six of which deal with creative work, and the seventh which commands the Shabbat. This is one of the many ways the Mishkan text harkens back to the world's creation and suggests that this particular building project was the completion of the creation process. Not the least, verses like Vayikra 19.30 and 26, to you shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary, which state this connection outright. During the Exodus, the people transformed their personal homes into sacrificial centers, cooking and eating the Korban Pesach and baking bread, two central elements in tabernacle service. After committing themselves to an eternal covenant, a national home of worship is set up by them. They have become active building partners after several months of passivity. If Har Sinai was the wedding canopy under which we stood with God, the Mishkan is the home we built together to dwell in and deepen our eternal intimacy. Today I am joined by a new guest, Malka Hubscher, a longtime teacher at Midrashat Moria and in Matan summer programs. Malka, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to speak about a number of aspects of these Mishkan Parshiot, sort of start with some broader ideas and then zoom in on some of the specific uh, accoutrements or items that are actually in the Mishkan. So let's jump right into that and take us into this discussion of the Mishkan wherever, wherever it feels right for you. Thank you, Yosefa. I wanted to begin our discussion today with, in Parsha Truma, which is this week's Parsha, which begins in the 25th chapter. We finish the drama of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of the Kriya Yamsuv, of Matan Torah. The Jews have gotten a taste of what it means to be a people who are following a god out of Egypt to the Midbar and through Har Sinai. And now we get a section that is often seen as very technical and even maybe boring. It's 
details laws about a construction project. The blueprint, the details, the materials that are needed are delineated in this section. And the, the Mefarshim, the commentators really debate about the timing of this command. While the command appears, as I mentioned in the 25th chapter, after Parshat Mishpatim and after the laws that were given at Sinai, Rashi, in a number of different places, suggests that while this appears after Har Sinai and immediately following Har Sinai, it actually only took place, the command to build the Mishkan only took place after Chet Egel. And therefore, the building of the tabernacle, the command that Moshe is told by God to build this very detailed tabernacle, is a response to Chet Egel. As Rashi mentions, in that sometimes the Torah is out of order, and here is one of the examples where he believes it is out of order. Rashi's premise is that the Jewish people, when Moshe left them up the mountain and they feared that he was gone, they panicked, and in a sense of panic, they needed something physical to connect to, which led them to the building and worshiping of the Egel, the golden god which they made or replacement to Moshe. And as a response, the Jewish people are punished by God. God is quite angry. And in a step towards their redemption, in a step towards the forgiveness, they have to then build a mishkan. That it is, as Rashi comments many times, kapara for the egel, an atonement for the egel. You built something against God's will, now build something according to God's will. And therefore, Rashi suggests that this Parsha is really out of order. It should appear after Parsha Kitisa. Moshe is commanded by God in response to Cheta Egel. Once the people have been forgiven, now do something right. Take your materials, take your gold, take your energies and put it towards something good. The Ramban very strongly disagrees with Rashi and he says, no, the Torah is in order. The way it appears in the text is the way it actually happened in reality. And the Ramban says that the Mishkan is not a response to the Egel, not a reflection of the weakness of the people, but rather it is a continuation of the Sinaitic experience. Sinai was a time when revelation, when the Jewish people themselves experienced revelation, the highs of seeing God and feeling God. And we wanted to take a remembrance of that with us. God's presence, which dwelled on Sinai, will now dwell in the Mishkan. As the Ramban says, And as the Jews wander and travel in the desert, it's as if they're taking Har Sinai with them. The, heart, the Mishkan with God's dwelling in it and the clouds of glory above it are a constant reminder of the profound experience of Har Sinai. And therefore, the Rashi and Ramban are not only debating what is the timeline of Sefer Shemot, but they're actually debating about what is the essential nature of the Mishkan. Is it a reflection of human weakness, or is it a remembrance, a token of Har Sinai that we take with us throughout our sojourn in the desert? You know, I think that really, obviously, as you're saying, what underlies this is a thematic question, and it also is this question of, you know, to which side do we pull the Mishkan? Do we pull it to the side of Sinai? Do we pull it to the side of the of the calf? Which, of course, you can't deny the fact that you all of a sudden have two building projects that happen for Am Yisrael in a row. Like up until now, we've been utterly passive. We haven't shown much of a, of a talent for building, right? But but this sort of it's sort of what do I do with this? It also, of course, comes to try and answer this question of. Why do we have the commandment that's repeated so many times? And and that 
fits better a little bit, right? With the with leaving it in its place. Rashi's Rashi's answer about having you know this really comes later. It it brings more questions. I think it raises more questions regarding so why organize the sections the way that we do? Why place the calf in the middle? Uh, I think that there's possibly multiple answers to offer, right. but it is also answering this question of we have three very distinct sort of sections in the book of Shemot, and the question is how do we look at the Mishkan in relation to which one? Right? We had the Exodus, we had the Sinai experience, and the laws that we received there. And then we have this whole section. The question is, well, do we drag it backward or do we connect it to the other parts that are connected here? So I feel like there's really some, there's these structural questions, but as you said, they're not really about structure. They're really about theme. And and they're two intensely different ways of looking at the Mishkan. I will say that on a personal sympathy level, I think that it reflects the fact that we could use our building capabilities for good and for bad. But I have a very hard time looking at the Mishkan as something that was not part of the initial plan. Uh, I think that many elements of it really hint to the fact that it was a necessary aspect. And, you know, later we created in a Mikdash, we recreate this experience. So I really, I think that, that uh, in, in many ways, I sympathize with the Ramban's perspective. And I also think that Rashi's perspective raises questions then about, uh, then, then why organize it the way that we did? Certainly, and I think also, while the Ramban, I agree, is more compelling, I think Rashi seems, sees so many of these themes of the Egel repeated in the Mishkan, and that is so hard to deny, yeah. which perhaps is underlying Rashi. For example, if you walked into the Mishkan, besides all the details, but what you would meet your eye was gold. You saw gold everywhere. Almost every one of the vessels inside were plated gold, and the walls were gold, and that gold just brings up, again, very much the imagery of the Egel, as well as our role, while Aaron was, again, there with the people, perhaps, again, initiating the Egel or trying to guide the people in that very, very messy experience of Chita Egel, he is the one who then is the Kohen Gadol, who then helps bring back the atonement. So perhaps what motivating Rashi, for example, the first that we learn in next week's parsha, the very first korban that is going to be brought in the inauguration is a par echad, one cow. That is the first korban on the day where the Mishkan opens. And Rashi right there says, of course it's a par because it's atonement on the Egel. Mm-hmm. So while reading the text is a close reading of the text and accepting the text as it is, I'm also compelled to reach the Ramban, but I see that Rashi just, and again, it's almost too hard to deny the seemingly thematic connections that we see really very much when you see the Mishkan, it conjures up images of the Egel and Rashi then really plays off of that, that dynamic. I think maybe we can uh, we can conclude this portion of the conversation by being very salivatic and say that there's a dialectic here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there there's two aspects to the to the Mishkan, and they both sort of uh, complete the other. And we can we can call right. we can just create some sort of compromise between them. Beautiful. Okay, so let's think a little bit about the uh, the donations that are given to to the Mishkan. So the Mishkan is not something that is sent down from heaven. It is not something given to the people, but rather something created by the people, for the people, but with the instructions of God. And the Parsha opens with a call for donations. This is Moshe is told by God, go tell the people that they should bring all the donations needed. Make for me a truma. And a truma comes with the word taram, which means to donate. And the entire Mishkan was created 
created by the donations. But in the word truma, you also see the word rom, which means to elevate. Take all those materialistic things found in your homes, found in your closets, found in your storage rooms, and bring them to the Mishkan. And by bringing them to the Mishkan, you're ultimately, by giving the truma, you're ultimately elevating the physical. And the Jewish people, indeed, look in their closets, look in their machsanim, and they bring. We will see later in Parshat Vayakel, when the actual building begins, Parshat Truma and Tetzaveh is only the command, while Vayakel and Pekudei is what we call the Asiyah, the actual building. And there, in while in our Parsha is just a list of what to bring, in Parsha Vayakel it describes the actual donation drive and the material everyone brings and in Pereklamid hey it repeats over and over the Pasukim repeat hey view hey view hey view and the people brought and the people brought and the people brought and there was this spirit of generosity that really overwhelmed the people. There are so many stories in Tanakh where we are disappointed by the <laughs> Jewish people and this is just such an amazing feeling as if you know a community is putting together a project and everybody's involved and it was such a spirit of generosity that the Pasuk tells us that the people came running to Moshe, the people in charge of the donation tables, come running to Moshe and they say, Moshe, we have enough. We don't need any more. By our calculations, we have enough gold and enough silver and enough wool. And so Moshe tells them, great. As we see in Lamed Vav, Pasuk Vav, tell all the people, we don't need any more. And the Pasuk ends, This is perhaps the only tzedakah drive where we ever say, we, we have enough. Our <laughs> we reached our, our goal. <laughs> Please keep your wallets at home. Yes. And this spirit really pervades and it feeling and what's beautiful is that not only do the people donate their things they also donated their times and their talents the women came and wove and those who knew how to work with gold came and offered their services and so it's also a lesson in giving one can contribute money one can contribute things and one could contribute time and talents to the jewish community and so they bring and they bring and they bring and the psukim here, back to our parsha where it's the command, there's a list as if there was a big whiteboard where Moshe wrote exactly what's needed. We need zahav, kesef, trelet, argaman. We need wood, we need gold, we need copper. We need spices, we need incense, we need oil. And the list goes up and it seems like everybody could just bring whatever they want. But interestingly enough, Rashi again points out and based on the Gemara, that there actually was three different categories of donations that was needed. Rashi learns this out, or the Gemara learns this out, from the fact that there seems to be a repetition of the word truma in these early psukim in the Parsha. The word truma appears three times. And Rashi says that Rabotenu, our, our, the Chazal, the Chachamim, taught that there were actually three different types of donation that Moshe called for, or Moshe commanded the Jewish people. The first two involved a half a shekel. A half a shekel was donated, a half a silver coin at the time was donated. Each person was told to bring a half a shekel. The first donation, then those half shekel coins, those silver coins were melted down, as Rashi says, to make the adanim. We learn later in the Parsha that the adanim are the sockets in which the beams that made up the walls 
were plugged into. And therefore, if you saw the Mishkan, the very foundation of the Mishkan, the foundations which the walls of the Mishkan rested on, came from this donation, the silver Adanim. That was the first one of the three donations. The second one, Rashi says, was actually left in a bank account. Another half a shekel was given, and that half a shekel was left in a kupa, in a bank account. And what was used for that? Korbanot Sibur. We will learn later in Sefer Vayikra all the important korbanot that are needed. Some korbanot come as an individual pays for their own animal and brings it to the Mikdash. Some korbanot are brought on behalf of of the tzibur of the community, and those have to come from public funds. In order to have a bank account of public funds, you need everybody to give. And so the second truma was that beka legogolet, a second half a shekel, a second coin, put in a bank account for korbanot tzibur. So those two donations were equal for everybody. Everybody had to give a half a shekel that was melted to the Adanim, and everybody had to give the exact same amount that went into the fund of the public sacrifices. And only then does Rashi say the third truma is the one that is delineated with great detail in this parsha. The third truma, which Rashi calls Trumata Mishkan, was all the different donations needed. The gold, the silver, the wool, the spices, the incense, the oils, as listed in Perikav And so that was only the third level or the third step in the donations. So if we could just recap, we have two donations that are smaller donations, but they're obligatory. And the third is completely voluntary. Anyone can bring as much or as little as they want. And this Rashi just learns out simply from the three times it says the word truma in the psukim. But I think we could really extrapolate from this something very important and very profound about the construction of the Mishkan. As we mentioned, the Mishkan is made by the people for the people. But in any project, we always we want to we want to be careful that everybody feels a part of it. We want to give equal opportunity for everybody. And the foundation, the Adanim, the very foundation of the temple of the Mishkan is made from equal donations from every single person. No one person could claim, I gave more, I have more of a place, I have more of a right to be in the Mishkan. Everybody is equal. But however, if you have equality for all and it's exactly the same and it's obligatory, you lose some of that spirit of donation. You lose some of that... uh, each individual's ability to express themselves, to express what they have and what's meaningful to them. And one person may take a a special necklace that they have from their family and say, I want to take this necklace, this gold necklace, and donate it to the Mishkan, and that's meaningful for them. And somebody may else have a woolen cloak that they would like to bring to use for the wool used in the Bidei Kuhuna and the clothing of the Kohen. And each person finds what's meaningful for them. And I think this is reflective of really our Jewish life and the values of the Torah. On the one hand, there is a value to equality where everybody feels equal and everybody feels apart. But on the other hand, we also celebrate each individual's expression of their spirituality and of their religious commitment. And we could see this as the underlying conceptual idea behind these three trumot that's mentioned by Rashi. I think that that's a really beautiful idea, and I think that as we're sort of exploring our relationship with law, okay, which is part of this obligation, we're signing up for a life of obligation, I think that the Torah, this is one example in so many places, leaves room for that level of personal expression. I'm also curious about the source 
of where these gifts come from. Meaning, can we explore that point a little bit about it likely came from Egypt, all right. these pieces, right? Where they weren't, they weren't, didn't have any family heirlooms, right? That are coming from their, their years in slavery. Uh, so what do you think about that point, about the fact that all these materials likely are what they got from the Egyptians on their way out? Sort of is like, you know, there was, there's a lot of discussion about why the Egyptians agreed to give them though those gifts, likely some sort of serious guilt that they had. Think about reparations and World War II, some serious guilt that the Egyptians had perhaps about their time there. Um, but then we bring it into the Mishkan, and it's it's not the only place that we have this example of sort of questionable items making their way into the Mishkan. We also have that with the mirrors, uh, and we say that the mirrors were also from the women in Egypt. That's the Midrash, not the Psukim, but it seems very, very present in the Pshat. So I'm curious what you think about that idea. So I think actually, well, the Torah never actually tells us where they got the stuff from. Yeah, purposefully, by the way, Yeah, purposefully. It's clear that it was from the loot. The language of Chazal is bizat mitraim and bizat hayam. There were actually two times that the Jews looted the mitraim. One was when they left Egypt, as we see in the Psukim. And the second time is when all the chariots were washed up. And we imagine that the Egyptians went out to battle laden with golden ornaments and all sorts of jewelry and very you know, beautiful garments. They went out, especially the dignitaries of the Egyptians. And as they drowned in the yam, it was washed up. And the Jewish people at the Midrash describes, they didn't want to leave it. They were grabbing it. And Moshe had to tell them, no, it's a time to go. It's time to go. And so they took this loot. The Jewish people had been slaves to had no personal possessions, a person who's free from slavery and finally has an opportunity to get a little money, may want to keep it all for themselves. And so on the one hand, maybe it's uncomfortable to think about how the Mishkan is built on the loot of Mitzrayim, but I think there's two very beautiful ideas behind that. One, first of all, is that the willingness to give. These are slaves. They don't have safety, you know, any safety net for them. They don't have any bank accounts with savings that they've saved up over the years. They have nothing. They leave with the clothing on their back and the bread that they're hope to bake. And suddenly they get all these very, you know, expensive and valuable items. And so I think it says a lot about them that nonetheless, they gave so willingly. And at Parsha Truma, we don't know how they're going to give. We're not sure. Are they going to actually part with all of these things? We only find that out later, as we mentioned, hey, view, hey, view. So I think it says a lot about the Jewish people. But I think it also calls upon what the Mishkan is all about. Very often, there seems to be this idea that's prevalent as today as well as throughout Jewish history that the true spiritual life is a life of negation, is a life of simplicity, is a life of holding back and never too much indulging in the material world. We come into the Mishkan, it's quite the opposite. It is a beautiful place, if not ostentatious, maybe even a bit gaudy. Some of the things that we have in the Mishkan, we would never want to decorate our homes with. It's just simply too shiny, too gaudy, too over the top. But yet, that is our Mishkan. And so the essence of the Mishkan, I think, is elevating the material world. It is not negating the material world that we often think is a sign of spirituality. Perhaps the message of the Mishkan is, yes, we elevate all the loot from Egypt. We elevate the materialism. We took these things out of Egypt, and God knows what they were done with them in Egypt. But we take it, and we elevate it to God. And perhaps that's just a way of looking on our role in the world and our spiritual life. Our life of spirituality is a life where we take the chomer, we take the materialism, and we elevate it to God. We don't need to negate it. And God dwells in beauty. The Mishkan and later the Mikdash is certainly a beautiful place, a message that God 
dwells in the beautiful, in the intricate, in the artistic, and in the magnificent. I'll just mention one point, which is that if in my introduction I mentioned how there are uh, common points between our Mishkan and other ancient cultures, it's at this moment that we can contrast, of course, the Mishkan with cultures that will come later, meaning religious cultures that, as you said, deny the exactly. importance of beauty or right want to get rid of any anything ostentatious in places of worship. That's obviously more the Protestant view, and uh, and so we really see here that you know different different cultures of of worship of God really. Uh, idolize or try and empower different aspects of that of that uh, of that relationship. I think that I love that point also about the fact that we take, you know, we take what we got from Egypt. And I would also say I wonder if people also, on one hand, it's alluring to own those nice items. On the other hand, I'm curious if they maybe didn't want those nice items, right? It was <laughs> a reminder books. of what they. Yeah, had it was a reminder. So maybe I'd rather get rid of it. I'll also say that I think that in many ways, it's sort of a, a foreshadowing or a similar model to to the concept of cherem. Okay, the concept where you. You go out to war later on. We'll see in in later books. And in uh, you know in Melchabat Bitzvah, we're not supposed to take the 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 loot that we that we receive there, and we're supposed to then basically give it over to God. So in many ways, this is sort of the first the first time that that happens. Uh, and I agree with you. There's really there's no other logical way uh, to explain the way that they got all these materials. And I think that that creates an initial and again an initial blueprint for what we'll have to do later when we go out to battle as well. I just do want to point out um, in response that when you read, if you do pay attention to the part that gets a little boring with all of the measurements, actually everything in the Mishkan was quite small because it was mobile and it mm-hmm. traveled with them. Yeah. And so while we imagine you know, them giving lots and lots of gold, the, all, everything was quite small, an ama here, two ama there. So perhaps there wasn't as much needed as we imagine, and therefore they were able to keep some of the stuff for themselves. <laughs> perhaps they if they you still just get noticed. to have a nice necklace. Exactly. Beautiful. So after exploring some bigger, broader ideas regarding the Mishkan and the concept of donating, and again, I think there's something very moving about the fact that the people are now, for the first time, really becoming active, contributing members of society. They've sort of been the the recipients of of, of different miracles and and uh, and of course the the covenant of law that they received. So there's something very, very different about the whole movement here, which is that they're becoming an active part of a building process, which of course will take time for them to figure out that role. So after seeing those broad points, let, let's go, let's speak a little bit more specifically about two elements of the Mishkan. Maybe we'll, we'll start with the Kruvim, uh, about how their role or also what was unique or, or even surprising about, about their existence in the Mishkan. I think when someone conjures up images of the Mishkan, the Aron is one of the first ones that comes to mind. The Aron was the golden ark with the lid, which is called the kaporet, with two golden angelic figures, perhaps with human faces, but with definitely outstretched wings that hover on top of the Aron. Now, not only do these exist, but God then tells Moshe that he will all revelation will come from Miben Shteyakruvim, that from from the moment the Mishkan is built, the source of God's voice will come from this very place, Miben Shteyakruvim. So what are these Kruvim that really, I think, in any other context may bring up the image of idols? And the Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmael, which is a Midrash Halacha, actually tells us an important Halacha about making the Kruvim. 
We know that the Mishkan is not only meant as a Mishkan, but a blueprint for the future Beit HaMikdash. And there's an interesting halacha that if, let's say, one of the vessels of the Mishkan gets broken or needs to be replaced, and you don't have enough gold in order to plate it gold, or you're the menorah, which is pure gold, and you need to make a new menorah, and you're not able to. So the halacha is, is that you can make it out of silver, and you can make it out of even other metals. But the Mechilta teaches us that cannot be with Kruvim. With Kruvim, you can only make them out of gold. The Mechelta also tells us that if you would like, you can make extra kaling. As we're going to learn in Sefer Malachim, Shlomo made 10 minorot, 10 shulchanot, but when it comes to the kruvim, if you make more, not only can you not make more, but as the Mechilta says, Omer Hareni Arba, I'll make four kruvim. I'll make them out of a different material. Tamud Lomar, Eloke Kesef, Eloke Zahav. Not only are you not allowed to make them, but then it changes anything extra or anything different into idols and will come under the rubric of idol worship. And so it's almost like with this kruvim, you're playing with fire. You're able, we have to make them according to what God said. But on the other hand, you cannot divert at all from the command. It must be made only out of gold, unlike other kalim, other vessels. And you can never make more, unlike other vessels. And we see here that there is this sort of Two opposing ideas. On the one hand, it's in the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest. It's where God reveals himself. But on the other hand, we recognize that there's an intrinsic danger in it, that it could look and feel and smell, and it could look so, it seems so similar to Avodah Zarah. And so how do we reconcile that something that looks so close to idols is actually the place where God reveals himself, and it's in the holiest of holies. So perhaps we can use uh, the Perush of the Chizkuni. He gives us a sort of framing of what these Kruvim are. And he compares the Kruvim to some a few other commandments we have in the Torah. He gives a number of them, and I'll just give one example. There is an, a... You're, one is not allowed to slaughter on Shabbat. One is not allowed to light fires on Shabbat. But yet the Torah commands us to bring sacrifices on Shabbat. One is, one is not allowed to cut skin on Shabbat, yet we perform the Brit Milah on Shabbat. Sometimes God gives us very, very overarching commandments. And then there are things that yet are allowed despite the overarching commandment. And that's how the Chizkuni explains the Kruvim. Of course, we're not allowed to make any graven image, any idols. But if God tells you, then certainly not only is it allowed, but it's even the holiest of holy. And this not only reconciles how it's allowed while God commanded it, but I think it also is very much... speaks to the Mishkan in general, just to go back to some of those big themes. There's another Midrash that I'd just like to quote. It's Nechama Leibowitz brings it down in her Iyunim her to Sefer Shemot, her studies on Sefer Shemot. It's a Midrash in the Midrash Agadah, which describes a moment or a conversation or a theoretical conversation between the Jews and God. They say, God, we so desperately want to be like every other nation. We want a palace or we want a temple, and we want to Every other nation in the world has one. And God says, do you think I need a temple? Do you think I need a palace? God says, I don't need it. But if you want it, as if like a parent says to a child, fine, if you want to do it, I'll let you. But you got to follow my rules. In order to ensure that our Mishkan remains the will of God, following the will of God, and not that it should turn in to a place of idol worship 
or a place that is just a carbon copy of all the other temples. It has to be. It is the spirit of man. It is you want it done, but it has to follow God's rules. And I think we see that very, very explicitly in the Kruvim. As one, the second you digress anything from God's rules, then you could already be violating the, again, the, the very, very weighty isur of avodah zarah, of idol worship. So there are two thoughts that come to mind with that really important point. The first one is another example, although it's almost like its own category of this idea, which it brings me to the to the prohibition to confide in or look for sort of sorcerers or any sort of fortune telling, uh, which comes at the same time that we're commanded to listen to prophets. Uh, and interestingly, God says, I'll give you keys to the future, but they have to be the keys that I allow you to have. It's a very, very similar idea. He never says that, by the way, those sources are illegitimate or are false, meaning there's a recognition in the Psukim and Zvarim that they have that they, they are possibly very true. It's simply not the way that I have commanded you to con, to confer, to consult with, to try and look towards the future. Uh, and the other idea that comes to mind is, as you framed it before so well through the Chizkuni, is this idea of exceptions to the rule. And what I mean by that is that very often in, in biblical law, we have you know, sort of this big principle. And then we have many stories, not even another law, but a story which seems to contradict the actual law. And I really hope we're going to have an episode again. We'll invite our professor, Rabbi Joshua Berman, who we had on, that we had on last week. We're going to invite him back to speak about another fascinating topic that he's written about, uh, which is about this idea of the difference between codes of law versus law as it's actually practiced in the community. But I feel like this actually sort of foreshadows that idea. The fact that we have principles in Judaism, and we have to have principles because that's the way a law system works, but we also have to have real-life application of them, and this is sort of a divine example of that, meaning you're not allowed to have these kinds of images, but God says, even though it hasn't happened yet chronologically, I know that you like to have images, right? I know that you have a temptation for those images, so we can even take something that seems so similar to that and bring it into our mishkan. We can sort of inculcate all those inclinations, but in a way, as you said, that I approve of, and I think that that point, not only about the fact that we can have exceptions to the rule, but that God says there's room for these exceptions that you show a desire to have and and that i think also is a is a really beautiful idea and of course it also points to the fact that i allow exceptions but it needs to be under my jurisdiction meaning the place where we allow all these things to happen all these milachot that are usually prohibited on shabbat they're allowed to happen in the mishkan but they're not allowed to happen in other places so i'm going to allow these exceptions but it has to be under a jurisdiction that i can know that i can control and I think that speaks to the point that we made before about elevation and not negation. Even something as extreme to Avodah Zarah may find its place as long as it's followed by God. Even that concept in the world of graven images can be elevated as long it's towing the line according to God's rules. So I think it also speaks to the, the bigger themes that we mentioned before. Amazing. So let's, as we wind down this conversation, let's speak briefly about the menorah and about uh, the aspects, uh, sort of the theological or thematic aspects that it represents. Okay, I think we've mentioned just a few times about the interplay between God's command and man's action. The Mishkan is a place that we build, but yet God reveals himself there. It is a place where we bring korbanot, but yet God responds by bringing the fire down to heaven, as we'll see later in Sefer Vayikra. And I think the menorah really reflects this point of connection, or the point between man's actions 
and God coming down, us bring, coming up to God and God coming down. If you see the psukim, the ones of the menorah are the most intricate, where you have not only a fully golden vessel, which gold is a hard material to work for, but on top of the fact that it's made from pure gold and not wood-plated gold, like many other things are, it has Torah-mandated ornaments. There's the, the flowers and the cups and the knobs, and there are so many ornaments. And in, on top of that, it's also quite small, as Rashi points out. It's only 18 tfachim. So you have a small vessel with lots of detail and lots of ornaments, all made from pure gold, which presented a challenge. And the wording of the pasuk is te'aseha menorah. The menorah shall be made instead of ta'aseh. You passive. shall it's make a passive it. language. A passive language as opposed to the rest of the parsha, which is all a language of of command. So Rashi notices that discrepancy between ta'aseh, you shall make, with all the other vessels, and te'aseh of the menorah. And Rashi quotes the Midrash me'aleha, that the menorah was made actually miraculously on its own. Moshe had a hard time. He couldn't figure out how to do it. Moshe, his staff, B'Tzalel, all the ex-slaves who were not necessarily well-versed in working with the fine materials just couldn't figure out how to do it. So Hashem said... Throw in the gold into the fire. And I think the very fact that it was made by God, but if God knew we weren't going to do it, why didn't he just say to Moshe initially? Because Moshe has to try. We have to make our effort and then God will respond. And I think the Mishkan is exactly that point. It's like the kissing point between God coming down and us coming up. And I think that just that moment of struggle of how to make the menorah, God gives us a chance to try, but then eventually God says to Moshe, okay, don't worry, I'll help you out here. Throw it into the kikar, as the Midrash points out from the passive language of the psukim. And I think that's reflective of the essential point of connection, what the Mishkan represented. You make a Mikdash and God will dwell within us, within our communities, within the hearts of every Jew. You know, if I could just bring us back to a point that we began with, that I mentioned in the introduction about this project being sort of the completion of the creation process, which Chazal point to as well. It's very interesting because one of the major differences between these projects is that the creation process was completely God's process. And it's really important in our in our dogma, in our in our general Jewish thought, that that process having been completed entirely by God. Uh, and here we have such a different process, right? You've sort of mentioned this idea in a number of expressions that we have, on one hand, the contributions of Am Yisrael. We still have a very clear hierarchy, which we'll talk about that hierarchy next week in terms of who, who works in this place, uh, which is very different from the way it was constructed, right? The construction is sort of a little bit egalitarian versus the actual daily functioning, which is very clearly not. And then you have also even Moshe, as you're presenting in this explanation, as being someone who, who also needed help throughout this process. And I think that there's been a number of of prior building projects. Uh, there's been the, the Tower of Bavel, which clearly wasn't a very successful one. Uh, and we also have the the Teva of, uh, of Noach. Uh, and there we also have uh, an interesting balance between the human effort, but the fact that God also had to close it, right? Meaning there's there's a, a partnership there between between man and God. And I think that ultimately in a place where we're supposed to meet God in our relationship with him, it's only 
it's only right that we had a significant part in this building. There would have been something very off if this whole project, we hadn't had any part in it. We would have just felt like we're walking to somebody else's house instead of we're walking into our own house. So I think that a lot of this conversation, which we'll bring to a close now, has really sort of pointed out this partnership, the partnership between what God lets us do, what we want to do voluntarily, what God recognizes as a need of ours, so it has to be in its place there versus God sort of deciding from above what's really meant to be there. I really want to thank you for this conversation. It was beautiful, and I'm looking forward to more partial. We're going to be thinking about the construction and also the daily functioning of the Mishkan. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.